Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 65, Antigonid Macedon, The Last March of the Spartans. The execution of King August IV by the Spartan Ephorate in 241 BC was intended to put an end to any radical ideas of land redistribution and restoration of the ancestral constitution, as envisioned by the great reformer Lycurgus. For a brief period, it worked. The diarchy was relegated to the status of a figurehead, and with August's rival Leonidas too busy enjoying the luxuries of rule to care, true power lay in the hands of the ephors. But removing the head did not wipe out the movement entirely, which had dug deeper roots than either the Ephors or Leonidas could have possibly thought. Why would they? For the man who would take up the cause of August would be none other than Leonidas's own son, Cleomenes III. He was about 18 years old in 241, and was married by his father to Agiatis, August's widow. This was to prevent Agiatis, powerful woman and heir to substantial holdings, from being courted by another rival from the Eurypontid house. Not to mention that she and August had a child, Eudiamides, who was to assume the throne. Young Cleomenes was apparently smitten by her charm and intelligence and became a dutiful husband and father. Despite having to flee into exile along with his family after August's coup, Cleomenes held no hard feelings towards the Eurypontid ruler. If anything, he considered the man a kindred spirit. Stories of August's bravery and political outlook disseminated through Agiatis, and Cleomenes increasingly found himself sympathetic towards the cause. He never was one for court life, and was angered by the lazy way his father ruled and the impotency of the kingship. Discussions with philosophers and dalliances with his male companions only stoked the fire within the prince's heart, who found great inspiration in August's message. Though he shared a similar attitude for self-discipline and austerity as August, he was far more politically astute and crafty. August's idealism had cost him his life, and ultimately failed to deliver on the reforms that Sparta desperately needed. It would take a man who was more willing to dirty his hands and game the system to his advantage. In Cleomenes' mind, change could only be enacted in times of war, when resistance to sweeping legislation wanes when the state's attention is directed to an outside threat. If there was to be any resistance, eliminate it. It was only a matter of time and patience. In 235, Leonidas II died, and Cleomenes assumed the throne. From there, he could begin the process of reform by provoking conflict with the Achaean League. In fairness, the political situation that Cleomenes found himself in already began to take a distinctively anti-Spartan tone. For starters, the alliance between Sparta and the Achaean League, made either by or shortly before August IV, had since dissolved. The League also saw the induction of several cities in the Peloponnese, the most prolific being Argos and Megalopolis, two of Sparta's great northern rivals. The goal of Aratus of Sicyon, the figurehead of the Achaeans, was to eventually try and incorporate the entire region of Laconia and the Peloponnese into the Achaean League. He attacked several Laconian allies who would not join, so it was natural that Sparta would feel threatened as it was gradually encircled. From what we are told, Cleomenes did not undertake any major action for at least five years following his accession to the kingship, leaving us puzzled as to the actual goings-on behind the scenes. Much of Plutarch and Polybius's information on Cleomenes comes from the memoirs of Aratus, who expressed a highly negative opinion of the Spartan king, and contrast with the pro-Spartan historian Philarchus, who was Aratus's contemporary. 
Polybius, a member of the Achaean League and great admirer of Aratus, directly calls Cleomenes a tyrant, the version of tyrant with negative connotations, mind you. It also doesn't help Cleomenes' case that Polybius was a proud citizen of Megalopolis and held a grudge against the king on grounds which will make itself apparent. Understandably, the depiction of Cleomenes is quite polarized, and the amount of blame for his actions depends on who you consult. In 229, Cleomenes took the offensive by attacking and seizing the town of Valbina, a highly contested junction between Sparta and Megalopolis that served as a natural invasion route into Laconia. Aratus did not idly sit by and let this go uncontested, but a preference for trickery and plots versus open engagements on the field ended up costing him. A night attack on several Spartan allied cities ended in failure, in addition to a ribbing from the amused king. The inability of the Aratus to check Cleomenes' boldest resulted in the Achaean League coming together in assembly and outright declaring war on Sparta by the year 228, thus marking the beginning of what would be known as the Cleomenean War. At the town of Palantium in Arcadia, a body of 5,000 Spartans was able to intimidate a much larger Achaean army of 20,000 into leaving without a single blow being exchanged. Aratus was never one for pitched battles, and when he did clash with Cleomenes a short while later, the skill of the king managed to rout his force completely. Rumors abounded with Aratus's demise in the battle, who meanwhile capitalized on his supposed death to steal away the city of Mantinea from under the Spartan king's nose. Cleomenes then led one last major campaign in 227 to the city of Megalopolis, plundering its countryside and managing to lay waste to another Achaean force that had disobeyed Aratus' orders to not attack. By 227, Cleomenes had clearly demonstrated that he was a capable military commander, with enough notches in his belt to be taken seriously by his contemporaries. Well, at least by his enemies abroad. His enemies at home, the Ephors to be more precise, were not keen on conceding any more power than they already had to. Tensions were already at a fever pitch by then. At some point, Eudiamides, Cleomenes' stepson and king of the Euripontid line, had died under mysterious circumstances. One author accuses Cleomenes of poisoning his co-ruler, though neither Polybius nor Plutarch implicated him in the event. To strengthen his position against the Ephorate, Cleomenes invited Agus's exiled brother Archidamus to take the vacant Eurypontid throne. When Archidamus arrived in Sparta, he was quickly murdered, either by the Ephors, as per Plutarch, or on the orders of Cleomenes himself, as per Polybius. The antagonism between the Ephors and the king were kept mostly under wraps until the time of the Megapolitan campaign whereupon Cleomenes had been quietly gathering allies in the Spartan assembly and securing the loyalty of his army through his victories. Convincing some of his peers of the necessity of reform, Cleomenes hatched a plan to deal with the Ephors once and for all. Upon returning to the edges of Sparta, a messenger was sent to the reception hall of the Ephorate, intended on sharing the news of the war against the Achaeans with the magistrates. Unbeknownst to the Ephors, the messenger was secretly accompanied by loyal officers from the retinue of Cleomenes. With the Ephorate's attention distracted, the officers lunge at Sparta's elders with daggers in hand, like hunting hounds set upon a cornered stag. The bloody bodies of four Ephors and ten of their defenders lay motionless in the sacred hall, while another eighty political dissidents were prescribed and sent into exile, a macabre contrast to the relatively peaceful coup of August almost twenty years before. But the deed was done and Cleomenes entered the city the next day to claim his newly won prize. Sitting upon his throne, for one of the first acts of Cleomenes was to remove the seats of the Ephorate, leaving one sole chair for himself, the king spoke to the gathered assembly to assuage the fears of his people. He had acted in the best interest of the polis, 
The efforts have become too brazen in their abuse of power, neglecting both their duties and eschewing the ancestral constitution of Lycurgus in favor of their own personal gain. Likening himself to a doctor purging a patient of disease, it was an unfortunate necessity that they had to die. But with their absence, Cleomenes could now enact the changes that had been clamored for since the time of August. Offering his own property as a show of good faith, Cleomenes redistributed the land among the various peoples of Laconia. 4,000 Spartiates were raised from both the Spartan citizens and the most eligible Perioikoi. These men were quickly redrilled and re-equipped with a Sarissa pike. The famously conservative Spartans had neglected, or were unable, to adopt the Macedonian phalanx, and instead preferred the traditional hoplite formation. Debts were abolished, and the citizenry took well to the reintroduction of the agoge and common messes. At long last, Sparta had been restored to much as she was in her glory days of Leonidas and Lysander. As a sign of the new times, however, Cleomenes decided to place his brother Eucleidas on the Euripontid throne. This marked the first time two kings from the same house comprised the diarchy, which really meant that Cleomenes now held undisputed control of Sparta. Cleomenes' takeover of Sparta was bloody, and more reminiscent of those like Agathocles of Syracuse. His elimination of the effort was unconstitutional, a tyranny by any other name, yet there were no recorded rebellions against his rule. His behavior after the fact helped him well, as he practiced what he preached, preferring the simple cloak, not indulging in personal vices, eating the same meals as his men. Spartans of all ages would see a king as they were among the time of their forefathers, and their loyalty to him would remain absolute. Despite hearkening back to the virtues of a traditional Spartan king, Cleomenes paradoxically completed the transformation of the Spartan diarchy into a Hellenistic monarchy. Coins struck in his name bear his portrait, beardless and wearing the diadem. He sponsored the construction of theaters and athletic competitions. To a degree, Cleomenes understood that the world had changed dramatically since the days of the Spartan hegemony. The power of Lacedaemonia needs to be communicated in a language comparable to the Macedonians. If he could do so without giving up the laconic lifestyle, then all the better. With his political enemies dead, and with the might of a newly revitalized Sparta behind him, Cleomenes could now look abroad to the rest of Greece. From there he could launch a campaign of conquest, and restore the liberty of Greece from the domination of the Achaeans and Macedonians alike, all united under the Spartan banner, of course. Hey fellow fans of Derek and the Hellenistic Age podcast. If you're like me and you can't get enough of the fascinating cultural ferment that is the Hellenistic world, you might be interested in a new podcast I've started. I'm Alex Petkus, a former professor of classics and now the host of the Cost of Glory podcast. I'm retelling Plutarch's lives, the most influential biographies in history. As you may know, Plutarch is a major source for not just Hellenistic history, but also Hellenistic philosophy, from Actium to Alexander and beyond. Check out The Cost of Glory wherever you get your podcasts or visit ancientlifecoach.com. And now, please enjoy the rest of your feature presentation. The political developments in Sparta had reached the ears of the Achaean League. Needless to say, it was unsettling news. The performance of the Achaeans against Cleomenes had been underwhelming, especially considering the youthfulness of the Agiot king and the overall weakness of Lacedaemonia. Now the Spartan state was more vigorous than it had been in over a century, and Cleomenes was uncontested in his rule. It is possible that the social reforms initiated within Sparta, which were almost entirely for military purposes, mind you, had frightened many of the members of the League, who were mainly aristocrats of their respective cities. Many within the League felt that much of this blame was to be laid at the feet of Aratus. 
While he had served as the head of the Achaean League for the better part of two decades, winning great victories against the Macedonians and Aetolians alike, his ability as a commander and politician seems to have waned as of late. His fellow magistrates accused him of cowardice, pointing to his retreat outside of Palantium as proof. The assembly was also livid at the loss of the force in Megalopolis, going so far as to nearly make Aratus pay for the war out of his own pocket. This incensed him so much that he almost resigned his office in the middle of his term, but ultimately decide against it. In 226, Cleomenes managed to lead several successful forays into Megapolitan territory, recaptured Mantinea, and defeated yet another Achaean force outside of Hecatumbium. This string of successes was an enormous boost to the king's prestige. Cities across Arcadia soon went over to his side. Even Argos, one of Sparta's chief rivals for centuries, had defected to Cleomenes. Corinth, which was liberated from Macedonia by Aratus nearly 20 years before, almost was able to capture Aratus and deliver him as a goodwill gesture to the Spartan king as proof of their loyalty. It was at this point when the war shifted dramatically. In 224, Cleomenes besieged Sicyon, Aratus' native city. The Spartans soon sent a delegation to the Achaeans, providing a list of terms required to bring the war to an end. Of the most important concessions would be the absorption of the Achaean League into his fold, with Cleomenes serving as hegemon, virtually a brand new Peloponnesian League, reminiscent of the political situation in the early 4th century BC. This was actually considered as an option by some of the leading members, but it was soon shot down. That same year, Aratus was elected the position of commander-in-chief and held absolute power within the Achaean League. At a conference in the city of Agium, Aratus pushed forward and passed a motion that could safeguard the future of the Achaeans. To combat the Spartan tide, Aratus called out for help to none other than his old enemy, Macedonia. As we discussed in the previous episode, the death of Demetrius II Aetolicus in 229 left Macedonia in a state of flux. Demetrius' young son Philip was not up to the task of rule, and the pressures from the likes of the Greek leagues and aggressive Balkanite tribes would have been burdensome to even an experienced leader. As a first cousin to Demetrius, Antigonus was summoned by the Macedonian assembly and married off to the late king's wife. This was done primarily to prevent the outbreak of civil war, and Dosin initially was made guardian and strategos to act in Philip's name. Rather than turning Philip into a puppet king like so many had before, the Antigonid dynasty's long-standing reputation for familial harmony prevailed, and Antigonus was a genuine protector of the boy's interests. Antigonus's leadership was also better than expected, especially when you consider that his father was the ill-fated and foppish Demetrius the Fair. One of his first acts was to launch a counterattack against the Aetolians, who had made considerable headway into Thessaly following Aetolicus's death. In a display of ingenuity, he managed to wipe out an Aetolian force holed up in the city by allowing them to escape, only to ambush them and cut them down. Presumably, he also quelled the aggressive raids by the Dardanians and other Illyrian tribes, but we don't have much information to corroborate. His position in 227 was secure enough that he launched a punitive expedition into Caria in southwestern Asia Minor, but his motivations are also unclear. A curious tale on Justin suggests that the transition from Demetrius to Antigonus was not as smooth as it appears to be. At some point during the early part of his career, a mob of Macedonians besieged the palace at Pella. Whether it was an anti-monarchical group inspired by the recent collapse of the dynasty of Epirus, or a rival faction of the Macedonian nobility vying for the throne, we aren't told. 
Antigonus then approached the crowd without his bodyguards, and tossed down the trappings of his office in resignation. He made a great display and spoke of his duty to protect the kingdom from outside threats, pointing to his victories against the Aetolians and Dardanians, and volunteered to abandon his position if that were the wishes of the mob. They then immediately bade him to take up the diadem, and he was formally granted the title of king, rather than merely standing regent. Of course, he only resumed his duties once the ringleaders of the insurrection were handed over and executed. Initially, the relationship between Aratus and Antigonus was much the same as it had been under previous Macedonian kings. The succession crisis enabled Aratus to induct several new cities into the league that had been previously under Macedonian control. Any further action was immediately put to an end, as the war with Cleomenes required the full attention of Aratus and the Achaeans. But to invite the Spartan king to take command of the league, even if it was a rash decision that ultimately came to nothing, was too much for the Sicyonian to stand for. According to Polybius, two ambassadors from Megalopolis had departed to the court of Pella in late 227, early 226, seeking aid from Antigonus since their city had borne the brunt of Spartan attack. This was apparently done with the consent of the Achaean League, and Antigonus indicated that he was open to lending a helping hand to Megalopolis if requested. Initially, Aratus lobbied against taking up the king's offer, and pushed to fight on the loan. But according to Polybius, the ambassadors of Megalopolis were actually guest friends of Aratus, and one of them provided him a secret report of the king's positive inclination towards both the League and Aratus himself. Our historian gained this tale from Megapolitan tradition, as Aratus purposefully neglected to mention in his memoirs any deals that were made without the knowledge of the Achaean League. The Achaean general kept this information quiet for the next few years, but Cleomenes' near capture of Sicyon caused him to make his move. To ally with Antigonus was to go against everything that Aratus had worked for for most of his adult life. In some sense, it was understandable. The war had been going almost entirely in the Spartans' favor, Cleomenes' takeover of Corinth, Argos, and the other cities of Arcadia meant that nearly the entire Peloponnese belonged in Spartan hands. Aratus himself had been bested several times by the king, and was humiliated given the disparity of age and experience between the two. Perhaps his sense of pride made him more desperate. Many of the aristocrats within the league feared that the radical reforms instituted by Cleomenes, namely the land redistribution, was beginning to make its way into Achaean cities and empowered potential traders. Some of the members of the League resented the Achaean government and saw them as oppressors rather than their guardians. Outside of the League, Aratus was running out of friendly faces. Even though they were allies, the Aetolians refused to offer any assistance to the Achaean League, perhaps smarting after dealing with their own defeats at the hands of both Cleomenes and Antigonus Doson. King Ptolemy III Euergetes of Egypt a benefactor and honorary hegemon of the Achaean League, could no longer be called upon to bankroll Aratus' campaigns. Ptolemy's interests above all else were to preoccupy the Antigonids, who frequently contested his naval mastery of both the Aegean and the wider eastern Mediterranean. Clearly he believed that Cleomenes was more capable at destabilizing or completely toppling Antigonus' control over Greece, and so he transferred his annual subsidy to the Spartan cause, and perhaps because he became aware of the dealings between the Achaeans and Macedonia. There are also several reasons why Doson would be inclined to support the Achaeans, despite their past hostility to both Antigonus II Gennatus and Demetrius II Aetolicus. In the meeting with the envoys of Aratus, they argued that Sparta and Aetolia were coming close to terms, if they hadn't already done so by that point. 
If this was the case and the Achaean League fell, then Macedonia would stand alone against Cleomenes, who would use the manpower and resources of the entirety of Greece in his great crusade. Antigonus found this to be a reasonable argument, and did see great value in stopping the Spartans before they reached the borders of his kingdom. Clearly, however, he was cleverer than he may have let on. With their appeal for help, Dosen must have realized that the Achaeans were quite vulnerable. Why not place pressure in the negotiation table? The price was steep, and the king provided the list of demands to solidify their alliance. Aratus was to hand over hostages, including his own son, and, more importantly, return the Acrocorinth to Macedonia. The Antigonids never forgot its loss to Aratus's schemes during the final years of Antigonus II Gonatas' rule. Its geographic position and defensibility made it a major linchpin to maintain their control over the Greek peninsula. And if Antigonus was going to put a lot of time and resources marching against Cleomenes, he might as well be well compensated. Aratus begrudgingly accepted the proposal, and Antigonus marched out at once with his army. Aratus's coming to terms with Antigonus Dosen was seen by later authors as a proverbial deal with the devil, and ultimately his greatest failure. The Corinthians themselves were infuriated at this betrayal, and destroyed the once-honored Aratus's home within the city. It is likely that the murmurs of Aratus's dealings with Macedonia is what led the Corinthians to defect to Cleomenes in the first place. Plutarch slammed Aratus, claiming that it would have been better to submit to Cleomenes than to have Greece placed under the Macedonian yoke. His feelings on the matter are all too apparent. Quote, Aratus groveled himself, and Achaea with him, to a diadem, a purple robe, and decrees of Macedonians and satraps. Now, while it is with no wish to accuse Aratus as I write this, since, in many respects, he was a true Greek and a great man, yet I do so with a feeling of pity for the weakness of human nature, when it cannot produce a faultless excellence even in characters so notable and distinguished for virtue. Achaean Macedonian alliance soon reached the Spartan camp, and Cleomenes decided to withdraw from his siege at Sicyon to fortify his position further south at the Isthmus of Corinth. Antigonus had departed from Macedonia with an army of 20,000 infantry and 1,300 cavalry, which greatly outnumbered whatever forces Cleomenes had with him. The Spartan king attempted to retain a stranglehold over the mouth of the Peloponnese, intending to inflict a war of attrition against Dosen. But his situation was soon compromised when Argos had revolted with Achaean interference, and in his efforts to try and recapture the city, he soon fled when the army of Antigonus made a surprise appearance. With the Spartan influence out of the region, Dosen had descended upon Corinth to claim his prize, and several cities in the area soon submitted to Macedonian control. So ended the year 224. It was quite the reversal of fortunes, for Cleomenes had lost territory almost as quickly as he had won it. 223, by contrast, was remarkably quiet, though not necessarily without its major developments. Despite restoring much of Sparta's military capabilities through land reforms and hiring vast numbers of mercenaries, Cleomenes found himself unable to keep up with the money and manpower available to the Macedonian kingdom. While he always had to keep the army close at hand, Dosen was more than capable of garrisoning cities both during and outside of the campaigning season. It was one thing to take cities through skilled generalship on the field, as Cleomenes was quite able to do so. 
but it was another thing to maintain your control or ensure its loyalty once the army was gone. Hiring mercenaries was an expensive short-term solution, and the subsidies of the Egyptian king were only just keeping the Spartan army afloat. With little in the way of options, he turned his attention to the Helots, the brutalized serf population that had been largely neglected in the wave of Agus and Cleomenes' reforms. They had little to benefit from the restoration of the traditional model of Spartan society, and there was always the chance they could incite a revolt with most of the army outside of Laconia. To entice him into his service, Cleomenes allowed the Helots to purchase their freedom at a very low rate, which also had the nice scythe benefit of adding to his dangerously depleted coffers. About 6,000 of the helots were therefore recruited into his ranks, a third of them standing in the phalanx alongside many of the Spartiates. In early 222, Cleomenes decided to test out the might of his renewed forces by invading Megapolitan territory once again. Unlike his previous engagements, the Spartan king successfully placed the city under siege, Cleomenes and a portion of his army were able to sneak into one of the city districts with the help of traitors within, and chaos instantly broke throughout the city. Those of the anti-Cleomenean tradition claim that the king immediately set his troops loose, plundering works of art and murdering or enslaving the citizens, leaving Megalopolis a smoldering pile of ashes. Others suggest that Cleomenes had initially restrained his men from running wild, hoping that he could convince the Megapolitans to submit and join his cause. They refused his offer, which enraged the king enough to unleash his soldiers upon the settlement. Either way, the outcome was much the same. Megalopolis was destroyed, at least temporarily, earning Cleomenes the undying hatred of Polybius. One notable figure to emerge from this event was a young Megapolitan nobleman who gallantly led much of the resistance to the Spartans and helped evacuate the population to safety. His name is Philippoemen, and for many he is described as the last of the Greeks, playing an important role in the affairs of the Achaean League and the rest of Greece, as Herodotus had done. The destruction of Megalopolis was seen as a heinous act by the Achaean League, and Cleomenes' subsequent pillaging of Arcadia was driving its members into a fury, who sought an immediate response from Macedonia. Antigonus, on the other hand, had yet to make a decisive move against the Spartans throughout 223 and early 222. On one hand, he must have been aware that Cleomenes' cash supply was slowly being bled out, even with the plunder taken from Megalopolis and the payments from the Helots. The Spartan king was also a skilled commander at the head of a veteran force. There was no point risking it all on the decisive battle unless the Macedonians absolutely had to. Not to mention that Dosen was busy consolidating his control of Greece. Solving the Spartan problem quickly would really be useful only for the Achaeans. Antigonus knew that he could lay out the foundations of a restored Macedonian hegemony more easily when the League was hard-pressed from all sides. The most prominent act of the king during this year was his capture and brutal sack of the city of Mantinea, which had originally been a member of the Achaean League, but had betrayed the League twice during the war. By mid-222, Cleomenes' fortune was running out. So far, Lacedaemonia had been spared from any invasions during the war, but the Macedonian army had been uncharacteristically aggressive in its push to the southern Peloponnese. The Spartan king attempted to keep Antigonus from streaming into Laconia by fortifying several of the hilltops that guarded the mountainous route, making encampments and trenches to stagger his progress. Initially, he may have been trying to wear down the Macedonians, but fate would have other plans. A messenger from Egypt reached Cleomenes' camp, informing him that he could no longer expect any financial support from Ptolemy. 
Evidently, Ptolemy was rather annoyed upon discovering that his subsidy transfer from the Achaean League to Sparta had ended up driving the Achaeans into the arms of Macedonia. Cleomenes had to send his mother, Cretesicleia, and his children to Alexandria as hostages in 223 to provide insurance. However, her arrival was shortly preceded by an Antigonid delegation, who eventually managed to convince Ptolemy to withdraw his funding entirely in return for some territory in Asia Minor. This was a huge blow, as the Spartan king now only had a few days worth of pay for his mercenaries, and the rest would have to be supplemented with plunder and spoils. Now left without any choice, Cleomenes decided to make one last stand just outside of the small Laconian village of Celestia, less than a day's march from Sparta itself. Comparing the assembled armies, the Spartans were outnumbered two to three. Cleomenes could only muster an army of 20,000. We know little about its makeup, but 6,000 Spartiate phalangites acted as the core force on the right wing, guarded by some light infantry and cavalry. The rest of the army spread across the field, with Cleomenes' brother Eucleidas taking command of the left wing, which included most of the Perioikoi and other Laconian allies. Antigonus, on the other hand, brought down the full might of both Macedonia and the Achaean League. 28,000 infantry and 1,200 cavalry were summoned in total, with the Macedonians forming over one-third of the total number. In addition to the Macedonian phalangites and light infantry, many allies were able to swell his ranks. Members of the Achaean League, Epirots, Illyrians, Boeotians, all contribute forces. Since the phalanx made of the Spartiates would be the toughest units to deal with, Antigonus positioned himself in a block of his own phalangites, twice as deep as they were normally organized, on the opposite end of Cleomenes' right wing. Peltasts, light infantry units more like the Hypacipists of Alexander, would screen the Macedonian phalanx. Achaean troops and Antigonus's cavalry would form the center. On the right wing would be the famous Chalcaspides, the bronze shields pikemen appropriately named after their distinct large bronze shields, along with lighter troops from Illyria and Acarnania. Like with the left wing, Antigonus played fast and loose with the phalanx formation, interspersing Illyrians among the pikemen to give the phalanx greater maneuverability. But despite their numerical inferiority, the Spartans had the topographical advantage. On each side of the narrow pass lay large hills, with Eucleidas taking a fortified position among the Uas hilltop on Cleomenes' left, while Cleomenes himself stood adjacent to the Olympus hill on his right. Antigonus's phalangites would find it difficult to flank the Spartan line, and could potentially be funneled into the center, where they, paradoxically, could be outmaneuvered and surrounded. Entrenchments dug out by Cleomenes' men would further impede the Macedonian army. If Dosen was going to crush Cleomenes once and for all, he would need to be creative. At dawn, the two armies met across the valley. On the orders of Antigonus, a spearman waved a white sheet in the air, inaugurating the opening of the battle. The Macedonian right wing marched forward, making the slow push towards the Uas. Javelin men and archers whittled away at each other, while the Antigonid troops struggled against the entrenchments and barriers on the steep incline. Eucleidas, standing among the Perioikoi, noticed that a gap had opened between the Macedonian right and its center. His light troops were immediately sent out to attack the exposed left side of the oncoming Chalcaspides, the Illyrians. From the Spartan right, Cleomenes had difficulty making out the troops approaching Eucleidas, but it appeared that the Antigonid left seemed awfully thin compared to the day before. His offer Demoteles made a summary investigation, but noted nothing of concern and told the king to focus his energy on breaking Antigonus's phalanx. Indeed, Cleomenes's training and the professionalism of his Spartiates made them a force to be reckoned with, 
as the Macedonian line was being held back with considerable success. However, an Antigonid officer soon waved a flag with a purple cloak. Suddenly, as if from nowhere, a rush of war cries broke out on the Spartans' left flank. Under the cover of night, Antigonus ordered several Illyrian and Arcarnanian troops to circle around the Uas and await the second signal. According to Philarchus, Demoteles was also bribed by Antigonus to betray the Spartans, explaining the supposed misjudgment of the status of the left wing. Eucleides had barely any time to react when the Illyrians descended upon him. Meanwhile, the light troops he sent out to attack the gap in the Macedonian line were unable to help. The cavalry of the Achaeans was led in a reckless yet brave charge against the Spartan light infantry by Philippoemen, who had been one of the Megapolitans looking to get his revenge against Cleomenes. His impetuousness was not without cost, as he was struck with a javelin that pierced both of his thighs. In a gruesome display of self-surgery, Philippoemen managed to break the javelin's middle by repeatedly moving his legs, pulled out the pieces, and still threw himself once again into the fray. With no possibility of aid and nowhere to properly escape, Eucleides and the rest of the Spartan left were cut to pieces. Cleomenes soon became aware of the collapse of his left flank, and so he tried to push through Antigonus's line by destroying his own barriers to broaden the spread of his own phalanx. This worked to a certain degree, but the depth of Antigonus's formation placed great pressure on the Spartans, who desperately tried to keep the spears of the enemy at bay. However, they could not withstand the tide for long. The Macedonians overwhelmed the Spartiates, sending them and Cleomenes in flight. The Battle of Selassia belonged to Antigonus Doson and the Achaeans, effectively ending the Cleomenian War. King Cleomenes returned to Sparta, covered in wounds and gore. No doubt stragglers from the battle probably brought the bad news. Out of the 6,000 Spartiates that marched to battle, only 200 remained at the end of the day, and maybe 4,000 troops in total survived out of the original 20,000. Sparta's military capabilities were effectively destroyed, and there was no cash on hand to pay for more mercenaries anyways. Even if they could hire more men, Antigonus and the Macedonian army was less than a few kilometers from the city limits. Still in his armor, Cleomenes retired to his residence and leaned against one of the columns. There he briefly rested his head upon his forearm and debated his next move. Rather than putting up any real resistance, the king advised the remaining Spartans to surrender so that they could live to rebuild. He and his followers then headed to the Spartan port at Githium and set sail to Alexandria, where Cleomenes would spend the remainder of his days as an advisor for the Ptolemaic king. Though Cleomenes' story was not quite over, the end of his reign definitively marked the end of Sparta as a major power. While there were brief flashes of Spartan interference in the wider politics of the Greek world over the next 30 years, none would even come close to matching the achievements of the last Agiot king. It has been argued by some that the Battle of Selassia was lost before it had even begun. While he had certainly improved the lives of many of the Spartans, Cleomenes' reforms harken back to a system that had many structural weaknesses to begin with. The Lycurgan institutions that created and enabled the Spartiates were a large investment for the state, and any losses of those citizens would be extremely costly and hard to replace. The Spartiates and Perioikoi would need to be given land, but this would eventually necessitate expansion, creating a snowball effect that would cause the Spartan system to buckle as it would grow too big to handle its own affairs. It is largely why it had failed after Leuctra in 371, and now it simply could not compete with the organization or resources of the Hellenistic kingdoms and the Greek leagues. 
Insolvency and the financial limitations of Sparta also plagued Cleomenes, who was just keeping afloat with payments from Ptolemy. Once that stopped, he was on borrowed time, and could not pay the mercenaries that were needed to stand against the larger powers. Because Cleomenes ruled as an autocrat ever since he overthrew the Ephorate, a power vacuum was left behind in his absence that resulted in the floundering of the Spartan state as it coped with political infighting. Surprisingly, despite all the trouble that Cleomenes had caused, no revenge was taken against the Spartans. Antigonus and his army entered the city shortly after Cleomenes' departure, and the Macedonian king was remarkably merciful and fair in his dealings. His soldiers were restrained from pillaging, and all surviving Spartans were left to be unharmed, with the king claiming that he was at war with Cleomenes and not Sparta itself. No doubt, the humiliation of having a Macedonian army occupy the city was satisfying in of itself. No foreign power, not even the mighty Pyrrhus of Epirus, had ever gotten past Sparta's walls. His occupation was not to be long, however. While Antigonus reportedly restored the Spartan constitution, he did install a governor to oversee the transition of power and good behavior of the citizenry, as he only remained in the city for a total of two days. Ironically, had Cleomenes decided to wait it out for a few days longer, the battle could have been avoided outright. Word soon reached Dosen that a large body of Valyrian tribes that had streamed across Macedonia were raiding the kingdom. Antigonus managed to make a speedy return to the north and rout the invaders, but he seems to have contracted some sort of condition during his campaigns, perhaps tuberculosis. By the middle of 221, Antigonus III Dosen died after ruling for eight years. In a time of great crisis, he had performed as an admirable king, capable of meeting the challenges that fell upon his shoulders. His loyalty to young Philip is also quite remarkable, and there is no indication in the sources that there was anything but affection between uncle and nephew. Later authors held Antigonus in high regards, admiring his temperate rule. Despite his anti-Macedonian attitude, Polybius considered Dosen to be an honorable man, openly acknowledging the key role he played in preventing the takeover of Greece by both Cleomenes and the Spartans. One of Antigonus's major legacies was the newfound relationship between Macedonia and the Achaean League. Whereas before the two could be found butting heads, they were now linked into a close alliance, the Simaki, which will be explored further in the next episode. The Cleomenian War was hard for the Achaean League as a whole, and they suffered great losses in manpower and prestige against the skilled leadership of the Spartan king. The bravery of Philippoamen at both Megalopolis and Selassia had gained him considerable renown from his fellow Achaeans, and reportedly impressed Antigonus himself, who was said to have offered a spot in his personal staff to the young man, who declined on the grounds that his personality was ill-suited to taking orders. Aratus' reputation, on the other hand, did not come out of the conflict untarnished. In a moment of realpolitik, Aratus endeavored to do what he thought was right to secure the safety of his beloved league. But as we explained earlier, this ended up putting him right back into the web of the Macedonians that he fought so hard to get out of. While Polybius is sort of ambivalent as to whether he could criticize one of his heroes, Plutarch was more open about his distaste of Aratus' actions during the war. One incident is the fate of the city of Mantinea. Antigonus was the chief architect behind the sack of Mantinea and the enslavement of much of its population. But ancient writers blamed the incident on the perfidiousness of the Mantineans throughout the war. They flip-flopped between Spartan and Achaean support no less than four times. What was frowned upon was the behavior of Aratus. Antigonus handed over the raised city to the Achaean League as a gift, who took the opportunity to colonize it after the original citizens had been deported or killed. In a display of gratitude, 
or sycamancy, depending upon the author, Aratus ventured to rename the city Antigonea after his new benefactor, and sponsored a festival in his hometown of Sicyon that shared the same name. Plutarch felt that this was shameful, a gross parody of the man who championed the freedom of the Greek cities against Macedonia for decades. But despite everything, Aratus believed that the improved relationship with the Antigona dynasty would see the restoration of the Achaeans' position and peace for the rest of Greece. According to Plutarch, King Antigonus sent the crown prince Philip to Aratus' household. Perhaps Antigonus knew that he was dying, and wanted his successor to be well informed about his new political allies. Aratus hoped that an influential position in the retinue of the future king of Macedonia would strengthen the ties between him and the Achaeans, and ensure the stability for Greece as a whole. Philip, however, had other ideas. He was not of the same temperament as Antigonus Gonatus, who preferred an indirect approach to maintaining his hegemony, nor did he have to deal with a kingdom in crisis as Demetrius Aetolicus and Antigonus Dosen had to. He was made in the mold of Alexander himself, with ambition to match. Whether Philip would heed Aratus' counsel, or limit his aims to much of Greece, remains to be seen. <laughs>